Trumanitarian. Welcome to Trumanitarian. I'm your host, Lars Peter Nissen. Every now and again, you come across an idea that is so simple and yet so powerful that it amazes and in a sense annoys you that you did not come up with it yourself. Field Ready is based on the insight that the supplies we need in crisis should be produced as locally as possible, both to empower the communities affected by the crisis, but also to save resources. In this week's episode, uh, Eric James, the co-founder of Field Ready, explains the approach of the organization and the impact of its work. Unlike most people I know in the tech innovation space, Eric is not predominantly... <clears throat> in this week's episode, Eric James, the co-founder of Field Ready, explains the work of the organization and the impact it has. Unlike most people I know in the tech innovation space, Eric is not predominantly driven by a love for tech, and you'll hear him again and again emphasize the need for a contextually adapted approach and for local ownership. He's not peddling some silver bullet, magical technical solution that can fly around and solve all our problems. I find Eric's perspective refreshing and smart. I think Field Ready does great work and that the organization in its DNA has some of the elements that we need to build the humanitarian sector of the future. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as Eric and I did. Thank you for listening. Eric James, welcome to True Humanitarian. Thank you for having me. You are a humanitarian practitioner. You've worked in the field since the mid-1990s. Uh, you've also spent a good deal of time in academia and have written a couple of books. We'll have those books in in the show notes for the listeners to, to look up. They are really interesting reads. I'd like to highlight in particular the piece you wrote on Afghanistan. That's, I think, uh, of course, very timely these days and, and, and worth a read. Uh, and, and it's a thought-provoking perspective you put on Afghanistan, I find. But you've also spent some time uh, dealing with startups, and you're here today to talk about an organization you founded called Field Ready. And why don't you uh, tell us the origin story of Field Ready? Where did the idea come from? How, what, what is it? Again, thanks for having me. Yeah, it, it comes out of my experience and that of my co-founders and really a passion for the work we do, but also a frustration that people all over the world don't have what they need when and where they need it. And I think that the, the sort of story for me and, and my co-founders have their own uh, their own experiences and examples of this. But um, I was traveling through South Sudan and came across uh, well, went st stopped in a sub office, and um, there were a, a bunch of vehicles in the in the compound, of course. And um, I was talking to the logistician, and I said, you know, it's great that you have all these resources to get the teams around. And he said, well, actually, none of them are working, just that one. And that one's only working because we've cannibalized small parts from all the others. And I kind of, you know, that was sad. And I, but I realized they didn't have Amazon Prime out there. And, and OK, so we worked to, to slowly get those back. But that story kept with me. And, and uh, a couple of years later, I was in Silicon Valley and, and learning about all the really exciting things on the horizon in terms of new technology, new ways of thinking. And, um, and I was really looking for a, the next thing to do. And I looked and all thought about all the different sectors I had worked in and um, different problems I found. And one, one kept coming back, kind of the elephant in the room, and that is supply chains. Supply chains just aren't what they should be in our sector. Um, there's certainly been the improvements over the years, there's been a lot of professionalization around logistics and, and so on, for sure. But there's nothing that's really been transformational in, in the way that um, we get supplies to where they're needed. And, and you know, research shows that there's, you know, some, somewhere between 60 and 80 percent of funding on humanitarian aid is spent in logistics in one form or another. So it's a really it's sort of a big problem in our in our sector. And one a very difficult one to deal with. Hardware is not easy to work on. <laughs> um, and so, um, you know, putting two and two together, spending some time to reflect on, on my experiences and then meeting my co-founders, we realized that, hey, we, we should be able to just make things where they're needed. Well, you know, <laughs> why, why rely on this sort of centralized, global, globalized 
uh, way of making things and having them shipped all over the world, there's massive inefficiencies there. And not that you can make everything locally, but certainly there's a large percentage of the catalogs that um, we all rely on um, could be made locally. We can um, help build capacity locally and, and rely on people's resilience, their own um, their own talents and resources and, and so on. And that's, that's exactly the ideas behind Field Ready. And so we started off with a small project in Haiti and showed that we could make um, small health-related items there um, very quickly, very inexpensively. And we've, we've gone from there and now in um, about 10 countries and, and working in a variety of different contexts I'm happy to talk about. So when you say local uh, production, are we talking uh, teaching people how to do a vehicle repair workshop? Uh, is it primarily 3D printing? What what kind of tech is is supporting this production? What what do you bring to the table? Yeah, we well, all sorts of technologies can be brought to bear, and of course, um, vehicles are repaired locally all the time. It depends on the parts, and so production of spare parts is a critical part of the piece that we bring. Um, now, we don't work with vehicles, <laughs> but, or typically we could in the future, but we're more focused on traditional humanitarian sectors. Health is a particularly important one and wash, but even things like search and rescue and, and social protection and so on, that there's, there's a whole catalog of parts we could. Now, the technology itself really varies and what we do is find the best way best one that suits the actual um, requirements that we find on the ground. So 3D printing is a very useful one because it's because of its um, uh, different capabilities that it brings. It's, it, it can make a whole variety of parts and, um, you know, you can make uh, something in the wash sector one hour and the next hour make something completely unrelated. Um, and you have a a very strong ability to customize parts and do prototyping and so on. It's not as good with um, mass production. And so we look at other um, technologies for that, including very common things like injection molding, which are big and expensive to do. Um, but the commercial sector usually doesn't pivot quick enough to work in the acute situations of an emergency. And that's one of the things we also bring to bear is, is that connecting or that enabling part a uh, role in in uh, in particular context. So you say sixty to seventy percent of uh, humanitarian expenditure is tied up in supply chain. What's the perspective here? We, if you if you had the resources you would love to have and you could scale field ready uh, as much as you 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 wanted to, what's your thinking? How how much of this sixty seventy percent could be implemented in a more efficient manner through you guys? Well, what we're finding is, um, on average, a reduction of cost in half, um, much faster delivery times. So sometimes going from weeks and months to hours and days. And and as I mentioned, and this is really important, the use of, of local capacity and building of that and, and empowering people to find their own solutions. Um, now, that's all not always done on every particular product or program we have, but those are the kind of transformational things that we're looking at. But we agree you're not going to 3D print 10,000 jerry cans, right? No, no, no not at all. No, that, and that's why you have to use different technologies. Yeah, so, so what, is the, what is for you the example you use if you want to really sell the idea to, to somebody? What, what's the, yeah, this is exactly where we have that pivotal transformational impact that I want us to have. Well, to me, our sector is all about context and what works in Syria. And we've had a lot of good things work in, in Syria, particularly in the health sector, where we are, are fixing small little parts for things like uh, EKG machines that help lots of people after that. But it's very different context in the Pacific, where we also work, or Bangladesh and the Rohingya camps, where you have masses amounts of people and you need lots of things um, over over a longer period of time. And that's where working with um, with government, with other aid agencies, and in particular the private sector, to use the capabilities they have to do mass production 
So the, the bucket, the sort of Oxfam design bucket that is uh, really important in our sector is actually in our logo for a reason. And that's because NFIs for a large number of people are, are often flown around at high expense and, and inefficient, other inefficiencies there. And, and when we are able to do that kind of thing, we're, we're meeting all sorts of different needs. And so it's hard to say we have this one example that, that sort of perfectly illustrates every context. We, what we do is talk about different contexts and how we meet those needs in those, in those different areas. Yeah, but the, the EKG machine, I fully get that. You can, you can do highly specialized, tailored, bespoke little thingies that, that enables a machine to work again that's really powerful and, and much cheaper than getting it from, from US or China or wherever it was produced. I, but I'm not sure I fully understand the, the mass production. So the buckets, the jerry cans, what, what's your role? Is, is it, uh, what do you bring? Do you just bring expertise to the field? Do you bring some kind of tech? What is it? Yeah, let me let me give you an example because I appreciate you uh, asking the question. Um, several years ago, in um, we were in Nepal and there was flooding in the south of the country, and we were talking to uh, one of the larger um, NGOs, and they said, "Well, we we have a plan to distribute buckets to every family." And of course, this is usually as a package of NFI, uh, uh, a kit that would be distributed. They couldn't afford the buckets because the buckets are mass-produced, actually, in that case, very close by in Pakistan. Those buckets are then shipped to uh, the UK or, or a place like the Copenhagen Warehouse for UNICEF. And then on demand, they're shipped back through uh, Central Depot like Dubai and then finally to Kathmandu. And you're still not even at the last mile. They have to be sent from there to, uh, to the distribution points. And so you take something that's a, a, a common item uh, that's relatively low cost. You'll see prices like six to eight dollars um, in the catalogs. But that's where that's where the cost is usually at the at the global depot. That extra supply chain um, adds a, an unknown amount of cost. Actually, no one's really tracking those costs. So when they call, when they talk about landed cost, it's usually a formula for a specific amount of um, a, a, a specific formula. So when you add up those costs and the time involved and then and the green impact, not to mention, um, whereas where we, we could have a bucket mold working with a local manufacturer to produce the, the amount needed, we're talking about huge savings uh, using local capacity, a, a positive green impact and so on. So It, it is quite transformational when it's been put in place. If I hear you right, what, what Field Ready is, is that you bring frontline the capability to leverage whatever is there in the field to produce whatever is needed. You may supplement with some tech like 3D printers or whatever, but really it is that presence in the area where, where, where it is needed together with expertise that's your core business. That's right. So we're not we're not outside trying to push product in. We're on the inside, um, shoulder to shoulder with affected populations, uh, in the same coordination meetings that many of your listeners might be, and really trying to identify the gaps and what kind of things we can do that really provide a leveraging impact. Now, sometimes it is about specific products, and so we often have a product focus. But more often, more importantly, we have a program focus. So we're about putting capability in place and, and creating opportunities for training so that people can do it themselves and, and so on. So, so that begs the question, do, what do we see in the field? Do we see field ready as an operational actor with an operational footprint? Do you work through existing humanitarian organizations? Do you link with, who do you link with? Yeah, I'd say we, we work uh, very much like other NGOs. Uh, we're, we're, not, we're a nonprofit. Um, we, um, uh, you know, again, attend the same sort of coordination meetings, talk to the same donors, work with the same popula uh, affected population. We do assessments and, you know, design programs just like anyone else. But when it comes to where we get the materials and, and the final products and so on, 
that's where we have a distinct uh, departure from the normal way of doing things. So uh, in, in, in an acute situation, we'll make things ourselves, our own teams and the people we hire locally. When you're in longer term situations, we more often are working with partners and some of them are the large NGOs and others are, uh, you know, ministries of health and, and affected populations themselves. And in those cases, that's when we uh, uh, try to, you know, create solutions that really have an impact that otherwise aren't being done. If the market is taking care of those needs, we would not try and do it ourselves. And that's one of the key reasons why we're a nonprofit. So if we go back to Nepal and talk buckets, right? You you say it doesn't seem to make sense to send these buckets on a trip from Pakistan to Copenhagen and then come back to Nepal. We'll make them here. So so what you go to who do you go to and say, are you on the market for some buckets? You know, surely you don't set up your own distribution of 10,000 buckets. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, today we focus mostly on those things that are um, that are fixes, repairs, prototypes and so on. We in in the Pacific and now Bangladesh, we're looking at that doing more mass production. And in those cases, we're uh, because we're an NGO and we're part of all the mechanisms and so on, the cluster system, we have a sense of what needs there are, the population size and so on. But we also have a sense of the capability because uh, that's already existing on the ground and the resources available because we're talking to uh, to, to government and to um, and businesses on the ground to see what they are able to do, um, and you know things like uh, injection molding um, is available in most countries, and that's where you're able to uh, you know make tens of thousands of items. Uh, if you were to have the mold and the and the identify the demand in place and talk to the right people who have the resource, typically donors and so on. Okay, so you're sort of agnostic with respect to who you work with in terms of of the agencies actually distributing to the to the affected population. You're more on the on the supply side, you could say. So you're you're there to ensure that it is available locally and for a cheaper price and more quickly through the use of more smart engagement with with the existing capabilities or capacities on the ground that's right so we're sort of ad, added value partner I, i would say we're also agnostic about um, technology because in some cases yes it helps to make the the first one as a you know using basic additive manufacturing or things like cnc machining but then how do you make a lot of them you may we may do something else We may even use traditional crafts and so on. It really depends on what uh, what's needed on the ground. We've made everything from you know beds and privacy screens and so on, mobilizing people in in, in a way that hadn't been done before. And so, how is the relation to the guys who fly in the buckets from Copenhagen? How 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 do they look at you? I think they're looking at us as a as a new way of doing things and potentially a new partner. Um, in some of the conversations we've had. Um, You know the, the problems we're talking about are have a lot of different dimensions, and um, you know most anyone would agree. Like you know, flying in things are you know sort of option of last resort, and if there's a better way we can do that, then certainly local people and donors want to see that. So you're not experiencing any sort of pushback. It's like who are these guys? Who do they think they are? It's more like it's interesting, or we don't have capacity to engage with them. But how do they see you? Yeah, I, I, you know, I don't know what their private conversations are, but but we're we're also not we're also not that big. What we're offering is a um, a, a new approach that adds to the toolkit of people who are in procurement and logistics, and I think that's very much welcomed. We are not going to start to 3 D print food or uh, you know uh, mass produce plastic sheeting and these kinds of special items. I think what we're doing is adding. Uh, a whole set of capability that um, can really address some of the supply chain gaps that exist, and and also fill things that aren't may may not even be in the supply chain, but that people on the ground definitely want, and that that's that's something that the big people on the outside aren't aren't necessarily providing. So, how would you describe the 
the theory of change, if you want, or the, the business model. What, is this like a, a proof of concept strategy or look, this can be done so, so then everybody will think this is really clever and start doing it themselves? Is, it is it a disruption of the existing humanitarian modality? What, what is it? Well, I, I think we're definitely past the proof of concept stage. We're working in about 10 countries on a variety of different contexts. Um, in each of those contexts, the experiences can be, or the, the way that the program, uh, you know, program activities are carried out can be quite different. Um, we see ourselves very much working within the aid sector and being a good partner. Um, so, you know, some of that is demonstrating a model that other, an operational model that can that others can follow. Um, in other cases, it's um, you know, as I mentioned, in, in an acute situation, we're providing, uh, we're making things directly there on the ground. As things sort of stabilize, we may work with, um, uh, you know, local maker spaces so that, uh, you know, those interested, particularly young people, have a way to uh, learn new skills, perhaps start new businesses. Um, on, on the more global side, we're working with um, a variety of different uh, NGOs and university partners in the UN to look at how local procurements is even done, because that's certainly one of the barriers to doing things this way. It's, it's simply not an option to procure locally in many cases. So we're trying to influence the way that uh, locally made items are perceived, you know, uh, very often they're perceived as, you know, a lesser version of what can be imported. And so producing things that at the same standard is very important to us. We've done a lot of work around uh, standardizing things and um, connecting groups to understand that, you know, if you order this part locally made with us or one of our partners, it would be the same thing that you brought in internationally. And that, that's a, a key to getting the, the, the mindset or the understanding around local manufacturing changed and, and a more viable option uh, in the future. So Eric, you, you had me at hello. I, I love the idea. I think Field Ready is, is, is a brilliant way of thinking innovatively. It's a brilliant way of um, leveraging the capacities in the field, empowering people, giving agency to the crisis-affected populations, enhancing localization. It ticks all of the boxes. So I think, I think it's fantastic work and and I'm really a big fan. When I hear you talk about it, one thing I really like is the way in which you refuse to be put into a nice little box. Right? You, you don't want to say it's this, and then you're turned into the guy who uh, goes to the field and, and makes this little thing here, whatever. You really emphasize the need for a, an organic, uh, participatory, locally defined and driven process. I like it. Where I have a small question, and, and sort of maybe the 10% where I, I still uh, think you could push it is, yeah, you, context is king, but there are some things you could be more clear on. There, you, you, could, you could be more specific on the types of strategies you utilize. You know that some things work in... In Kenya, it's likely that they might also work in Uganda. They... You know, of course, each country is individual, but surely Field Ready could standardize to a certain extent what you do. So, so what's your thinking around that? What, how much can you standardize your approach without losing what is one of your key strengths, the, the contextualized approach? You know, so much of what we've done to date has been innovative or things that have been done literally for the first time. And that uh, enabling people's creativity and giving them time to be curious and try things out is, is a really key part of, of um, any innovative endeavor. But you're right, at a certain point, well, that's been done before. We don't need to redesign that particular thing. And um, there certainly needs to be some guardrails or defining, hey, those are things that we don't do uh, here. Um, um, and just so it's clear, um, you know, one of the things we wouldn't do or really compete with local business or try to displace, we don't use the word disruption. Um, we're 
we're far more additive than we are subtractive in trying to take others down. Um, we want to work with, with groups. So um, a, a key part of the things that we've been doing, and this really does have to do with creation of standards, um, of sharing, openly sharing designs, of um, building capacity within our teams and, and those of our partners and so on, is a, is a big part of our focus um, in the last year or two, but even increasingly so in the future. So that, um, you know, if you go to, uh, you know, if you look at the catalog on our website, there's, you know, 100 and close to 150 uh, different designs on there arranged by sector. So you can quickly find out if something's in wash health or what have you. Um, those designs are shared in various places, but but also we're happy to to work with groups if they need to know the you know the the specifications and further details of those. We um, um, are are working with groups to look at localizing um, or rethinking how local procurement is done and creating um, the way that those designs and and other things are shared so that there's a standard behind them and those whether you make something in Nepal or Kenya their the product is actually the same and maybe maybe part of it needs to be on the left side or the right side that you know for for local reason those those can be altered and and create a new version of something but but a lot of that work is is now maturing and, and we're happy to say that we're working with a, a big host of organizations working on that so that there's a there's efficiencies gained out of out of that approach so i would imagine that you often engage uh, when there is a sudden onset crisis or a spike in a protracted crisis that there's so, sort of is an event that that uh, that triggers you to go in but if I hear you correctly, you 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 stay behind and and work long term with manufacturing locally. Is that right? That's right. I mean, like a lot of organizations, we um, maintain an emergency response capacity and and see that um, you know if there's a, a conflict or some uh, natural hazard event that's happened, we would go in and try and offer help. In some cases, we've stayed as little as a you know a couple months. Um, in other cases, we've, you know, have gone into countries and we're still still working there years after. Um, I think our, our ability to have an impact actually increases in that reconstruction phase when um, you have the ability to do training, to work with groups, to find out what, you know, what's the underlying causes of things to, to you know, develop people's talents to use local resources. So far more than just about, oh, well, the, here's a need, let's fill that need. It's about working locally and, and harnessing all those all those things that are, are already existing in a lot of cases and, and overlooked. So what I'm thinking is you must have experiences of entering a country sort of uh, prompted by a sudden onset disaster, staying behind, and then actually staying long enough for, for a second crisis to occur. Could could you describe the learning curve and, and how how that how that long-time presence helped you react the second time around? I mean, we, we've been working in, in chronic situations that uh, certainly may have had a, a start point, but the end point is very unclear. And our programming um, it can evolve as the situation evolves itself. So in Iraq, for example, we're working with a, a variety of different uh, maker spaces and working with youth to um, develop their skills and so on. So it's far less about specific outputs that we've talked about and more about that community engagement and creating a future where others can make their own uh, their own things locally and, and meet their own needs. In neighboring Syria, it's very different, right? The, the conflict was already going when we entered and um, and it doesn't have a clear end in sight. Um, in some cases, I mean, the, when we're talking about acute onset disasters, uh, a hurricane response, for example, we've gone in for a short period of time, found that 
you know, the area is largely okay once the um, aftermath of the hurricane has been, you know, addressed. And then we, we've moved on. Um, we also work in situations, well, in the Pacific in particular, where there's, where tropical cyclones are cyclical and the, um, the ability to do things to re reduce the risks involved with that are, are long-term. And then also the effects of climate change and, and endemic poverty and so on. So there we have in the Pacific uh, an ongoing program that looks at some of the mass production and, and things like that. We have done bu bucket distribution and uh, designed a new type of latrine slab and so on, things that take a long time. But then when there is a, um, a tropical cyclone there, we change our shift gears and respond to that um, using some of the items and capability that we, ha that we put in place um, and then go back to that DRR mode bef that happened before or in between these periods. You, you are an enabler or incubator for local capacity in humanitarian situations is almost what I hear. Does that speak to you? It, it certainly does. And I, I think, um, and, or at least that's the, the starting point. Incubator to me sounds sort of, um, you know, in the first earliest phase, but I would see us as working beyond that because these are, you know, what we do is very simple, but the places that we work are very complex. And so having a relatively simple solution isn't going to just work in that one case unless it's, you know, literally that health clinic or that, you know, that community that needs some, you know, things around wash. But when we're talking about the entire community, the entire country of, a, you know, in a, in a, that's undergoing a humanitarian concern, that it's not the kind of thing you can turn around in a couple of months or a year even. So let me see if I get it right. So I would say you operate in humanitarian crisis, so where there are severe needs of the population. You try to ensure that the local capacities are as active and, and utilized as possible in that situation. You do that through an organic process where you go to the field, you see what's there, you figure out what's needed, and then you bring whatever is required in terms of tech or expertise or knowledge or connections or conversations with the UN about, hey, why, do you, why don't you buy locally? All of these things. You, you sort of push all the buttons you can reach to, to reach the goal of empowering the local area, whatever that might be, as much as possible to use their resources to respond to their situations. Is that, is that it? Um, yeah, and I would add to that that we all define humanitarian slightly differently. And I think most of all, you know, humanitarian aid is needed when uh, when development is not really working or has failed at some point. And that means it's not just an acute onset situation or or those chronic ones that we, we know quite well, but there's all sorts of situations in between. We're talking about um, at least on average, 100 million people a year in about half the countries on the planet are either going into or coming out of a disaster of some sort. And so you're talking about a huge portion of um, the people on the geographic space out there. I, I think business as usual really has not been addressing all the needs and we needed to do things do things that are different and really going to be transformational rather than simply incrementing or slight small improvements on what's already been done. And so this is this is one approach to that that I hope is really complementary to what others are doing, but works in these different contexts depending on how they are playing themselves out. So I would say you are firmly part of a localization agenda. I think that that's that's clear and and you have uh, i also fully agree with you on the the need for a dramatic shift in in or complementarity in our approaches as compared to what we what the overall efforts of the system are 
how would you contrast what you do in terms of localization to we talk a lot about localization in the sector what, how would you contrast your efforts with with what you see from from the rest of the system what what is it that that you do better than the rest of us it's a great question because the um localization can be understood in a lot of different ways and i think it's worth pointing out that our very first program is field ready was actually in texas it was to help it was helping migrant children coming from latin america and so this may seem like oh they this is something developed in the us or in the global north and so, uh, yet again a, an idea being brought to the south when in, when in fact it's just uh, what i see are a, a huge amount of connections between all of us, you know, that, that old idea of, you know, we're all one people kind of thing. Now, what, what is really localized are the specific context, the experiences that people have. And, it, you know, part of the definition of a, of a disaster is that local mechanisms can't cope, that something outside is needed. And whether that's in, in Texas for migrant children coming in or for flooding in Europe for that for that matter or you know flooded cities in Asia you know these are developed places but outside help is is needed at some level and um but it's the right kind of outside help that's needed and one that really m mobilizes um the talents resources identifies opportunities rather than just saying here's a need here's a need and we're going to um fulfill it as soon as fast as we can whatever consequences there are i hope we can have a much more nuanced and thoughtful approach to localization that is really empowering and um and only uses the right sort of know-how or you know if it needs to be a technology addition that's that's fine but but sometimes it's none of that sometimes it's a mindset that needs to be Um, conquered and and this is one of the reasons why we work at different levels so we're not just a sort of a grassroots NGO we're also trying to influence people's thinking at a global scale as well so let's talk mindset let me go hardcore humanitarian on you here right so that's great Eric I mean so you can mold a couple of buckets in Nepal you can fix an EKG machine wherever but it's not scalable and the needs we're dealing with here I mean what what are you talking about this the, 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 It's nice. It's not. I like what you're doing. It's nice, but uh, you know this is serious business, you, and you can't scale this. So, how, how would you how would you react to that sort of uh, challenge? It's it's a fair question, but I would we'd have to. What do you mean by scale? When 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 is something scaled? It's in two countries. Is it in two hundred countries? Uh, very, you know. I would say when you have several hundred thousand people on the move, for example out of a country, when you have massive refugee camps with very sudden influx, when you have uh, a Haiti earthquake, 2010, um, the mega disasters, I would say, at least, I, I would say, uh, you know, cute buckets doesn't, you know, doesn't meet the demand. Sure. I think, well, I don't think any one solution meets all the demand. That's why I think even the largest organizations, uh, you know, Red Cross comes to mind, are only addressing a, a finite, have put bookends about what they're actually approaching. This is, a, you know, humanitarian aid is a, an all of us endeavor, right? Um, but, you know, fair point. How do you, how do you go, you know, how do you meet that demand? I think localizing Um, manufacturing is just part of the solution and this is why we take pains to work as a good partner and to make sure we do things that are to the highest standard and you know follow things like sphere and, and so on um, I think uh, it, it's a key part of what we do is not just what field ready itself and its partners can do but how this approach can be adopted to by others um, all the things that go around local manufacturing are, are uh, you know rely on what's there on the ground what you know what kind of pre-existing technology and manufacturing capabilities there are what what 
kind of knowledge people have, um, what what's uh, there in stocks and so on. So in some cases, there's often quite a bit. Um, not every, not everything is a sort of blank slate where that needs to be flown in by a cargo plane. Um, in many cases, you know, if there were a, a large earthquake, it could be that the manufacturing capability was unaffected. The assumption that the starting point was, is often, well, there's nothing there. And what we're saying there is there is something there. And if, if nothing else, there's people's own resilience and ability to think through their own problems and, and so on. That, that is certainly scalable. That's how humans do things. I think um, so if, if others, you know, more adopt our approach and think about, okay, we're going we're gonna to push in these, this portion of our procurement in the earliest of days, but then we're going to shift to localizing, uh, you know, the, the procurement through manu- through local manufacturing. That's a big transformation in itself, and and is one that that I found worthy to to, um, to spearhead and have others uh, pick up as we go. Thank you, Eric. That was a very reasonable answer to a very unreasonable question. Um. So I have to be honest, I really like this. And I, I, I'm really envious that you got this idea. I think it's a fantastic idea. I wish I had had it, but I didn't. What I really like about your approach, because I think it's more than an idea, it's, it's also the approach that I like, uh, is that there, there is sometimes a tendency when we, when we get into uh, the, the area of, of tech and humanitarian action to go a little bit boys and toys Everybody wish we have had we had had a drones when we were kids. That doesn't mean it's useful in the field today, right? And what I really appreciate about uh, your approach is is that deeply sort of uh, localized approach where you really go out and, and context is king, and you you base your interventions on not global ideas about what might work and not work, but really a dialogue and, and a much more organic way of working, if you can say. I think that that's an incredible strength. Um, could you speak a bit to how you generally see us working with tech as an industry? How, how What are the things we do well or where do you think we should do better? Yeah, thanks. I think, you know, as, as you were saying that, I, a couple of thoughts came to mind. And one was that... Um, you know, the, the development sector was actually kind of further ahead in this in some ways. If you look at the work of Robert Chambers, for example, um, participatory development and so on, I, I actually learned that first and then later on learned about human-centered design and design thinking. Um, and what struck me is like, yeah, we already do this, right? <laughs> we, we get out of the building, you talk to people, um, you know, you find out what works for them and doesn't and so on. Um, now, the part of the challenge is, is that that has not always been the case in the development sector. And in, and in the humanitarian sector, we're, we're often in too much of a rush to, to uh, you know, get things done and, and meet need and so on. So that's why what I really tried to instill at Field Ready is, is, um, is some thought to that and how we ensure that we're connecting as much as possible and getting the good ideas from from the field and that's one of the reasons why that name is the field is not a great name we had, you know there's problems with it but it, it it implies that's where the action is or that's where things should be happening um, and we even have a thing now put up, put on the on hold partially because of covid but internally we have a thing called field days where people are supposed to be out talking to people and getting to, you know, be closer to the issues or the problems and challenges. Um, that's now some of those things come out of, you know, or part and parcel of things like lean startup. Um, uh, but it's hard when people have not spent sufficient time, you know, on the ground or what would be considered with customers, um, really getting to know what their, um, the challenges they face, not just you know, you know, in a one-hour workshop, but you know, day in and day out. Um, what are their real gaps and what they're what they're experiencing, and how how could either information 
uh, you know, knowledge um, or, or, or things like hardware or software make a difference in their lives. And so I think that really needs to be the starting point for any sort of so-called solution out there. Um, it's far less about the technology I found than it is about how people think about things and their mindset. And, you know, um, uh, so I'm, I'm weary of tech and want to make sure that it's supporting um, impact in people's lives, most of all. So when you think ahead uh, 20, 30, 50 years, what do you hope that humanitarian action has evolved into? It's such a great question because there's so much to that. You know, I, I, I'm a very optimistic, half glass, half full kind of person. So I, I, I want to be able to say, oh, whether, you know, we work ourselves out of a job and, you know, human life just continues to get better. But, but, but there's a big, big, there's a reality there. And that's what we've experienced over the last couple of years in particular has shed light that these are not just these humanitarian contexts are not just something far away, but in fact can impact all of us on the planet. And so, um, you know, a typical way of thinking about this stuff is through scenario planning and, you know, you have your cone of uncertainty and you can say, well, 30 years is, <laughs> is beyond the cone and how, how do we know? But I think there's uh, things we can be doing today, and that is how we how we think about these things in general, and how we even approach development, and in, in in different ways that can take into account that everything isn't going to be perfect, that there's going to be vulnerability and instability and so on. It's how how we manage that. So rather than just trying to prepare for events in the future. Um, or, or plan around events in the future, I think it's far more important to prepare for a future that includes that uncertainty. Um, it, you know, I think everyone knows what a, a black swan event is, these high impact things that no one could really predict. I, there's there's other kinds of events out there that, um, and they, ha they have also cute names, you know, black elephant and jellyfish that where, you know, a small thing can become a much bigger thing or, Or a, a big thing people don't really want to deal with. Um, you know, climate change is one of these things that is uh, going to have impact on on us for generations to come, and we need to take that seriously. Or when there's a, a refugee flow in a faraway country, well, you know, they those people unfortunately have probably have a much longer journey than just the country right next to to them. They're they're going to be showing up in other places. I, These kind of things have to be taken seriously at their source, and, and we need to find better ways to do that. We need to prepare for that future, not just a plan. As and what I hear you saying is that core to that is to enhance our tolerance for ambiguity, essentially. A absolutely, absolutely. I think if there's two things that really set, you know, aid work, humanitarian aid work, as, apart from development, is is one that very high degree of Ambiguity. We don't have sort of five-year plans and so on, um, but we also have to do things very quickly, um, and uh, and that that involves you know what the uh, pivoting as they like to say to to new things and doing things uh, more than one thing at a time. Um, these are all things that I th I think are central to, to being good at, aid, at humanitarian aid work. Yeah, I agree with that. I think. Uh... I mean, essentially, what we're saying is ambiguity and agility is is the core skill set if you are to respond to crises of the scale and severity we will meet in the future. And I think one thing that worries me is that I don't see us developing institutions that are particularly well suited to operate in ambiguous environments or to be very agile for that matter. And and I think. One thing I keep on coming back to when I think about the future humanitarian sector is what 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 do those institutions look like? How, how do you actually is it even possible to to build that type of institution or enough of them or at a scale that will make a real difference? And and I just don't know. Uh, either do I. <laughs> I I mean I think you know. Uh, Poor management and poor governance is a big root of all of these issues, right? Yes, 
Yes, I, so I agree with, sure, poor management, poor governance, yeah, yeah, yeah. But also really bad architecture, really poorly designed institutions and perverse incentive structures. I think, I think we really have to keep an eye on that because that is really what underlies a lot of the, the poor management and the poor governance you see. Yeah, I think there, there's a, um, a risk aversion in that. And then when there's ambiguity or complexity, there's people go back to their tools and so on. And I, th- I think that that push for, um, you know, a- adopting business practices in the aid sector is um, in, in one in one hand helpful, but another hand very uh, not helpful because this is a different sector. Yeah, we need project management, but we also need a, a flexibility that allows us to deal with the complexity that we face. That isn't present in a, you know, if you're running a, a big box store or a, a software you know, company, um, it, it's just off the charts. And so um, we need to have our own ways of thinking in our se- in this sector that maybe other sectors could benefit from that tolerance for extreme ambiguity that um you know ability to be flexible I, 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 you know the, another idea from robert chambers is a, a adaptive pluralism and that focus on people uh is is really important and i think that that deserves a wider a wider audience itself Eric, uh, thank you so much for your work. And I really like the way in which you think of this, not just as the things you produce, but as a transformational shift that will change the way we do business in the future, because we do need to to change that. So thank you. And thank you for coming on True Humanitarian. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. It's about the rights and the freedom to be, for people to choose their path in life and dream. Souls of men beyond what you see. Stages are different for each who will lead. Cycles of outsiders that get fat checks, fly in, fly out of places with slums and jets. Ask better questions, pick apart, educate, and no one is safe. We're here to build and debate. We are, we are searching for more. Open up your mind beyond rich or poor. For the truth, you've been warned. Humanitarian.